This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family, we have come to the end of our series in the book of James, and we titled it Faith Works. By way of reminder, the reason why we chose this title is to remind us that our faith, while it's something that has has changed us, it's something that we hold to, um, there should be things about us that genuinely change. And we need, there should be things that are made manifest in our lives so that we know that this faith is authentic. In other words, if we were a part of a factory or an assembly line and we go through in the front end of that assembly line, we should look a certain way coming out. And so this idea of faith is one that we don't take lightly, is one that God doesn't take lightly. And there are some ways that James has shown us very practically how our faith should work. How should your faith work? James has shown us how our attitudes should be during trials during temptation. He's talked to us about what our attitude should be if we're poor, what our attitude should be if we're wealthy. He's walked through various evidences of genuine faith. Remember, how we should respond to God's word correctly, how to avoid favoritism, what it means to produce actual works of mercy, what it means to practice personal discipline with our tongue, discipline in our critical attitudes, what it means to correct uh, ungodly, godless self-confidence, how to demonstrate economic justice, what it means to practice endurance, what it means to avoid godless oaths and promises, and finally, where we are today, the proper use and power of prayer. How should we pray? And more, more importantly, in this case, how does prayer work? That's an important question. The reason why it's so important is for for those, uh, again, for, for those who put their faith in Jesus, this question has to be a huge one, right? What is prayer and how does it actually work? Now, that might seem rudimentary, might seem basic, might seem elementary, but it isn't. Because if you don't answer this question correctly, you likely don't understand prayer and your use of it may not, not only disappoint you, but it may actually hurt and push others away. In other words, if we don't understand prayer well, we don't understand the power, we don't understand how it should be used, we don't understand the purpose of prayer, then we do what our younger brothers and sisters say, uh, we miss the assignment. So it's vitally important that we get it here. This is how James ends, because James understands how important uh, our understanding of the power of prayer and the power of who God is in us, how important that actually is. Now, why am I bringing this up? Why is prayer a place where we have to really focus on getting it right? A huge reason why people are reticent to engage Christianity. It's not because they don't know any Christians. It's easy to say like, well, you know, you just got to find the right kind of people so that you won't have these negative reactions against Christianity. The truth of the matter is that most of these folks, most times people avoid Christianity because they know Christians, because they've had interactions with Christians. And largely when Christians put it this way, the way our faith works has the power to attract and or has the power to repel. When we model humility, when we model grace, when we model truth, when we model love, when we model several of the attributes that have been displayed by Jesus and his earliest followers, our faith is working correctly. That's what Jesus meant by when he is exalted, he will draw all men and women to himself. But sometimes there are things that we do, things that we say, things that we believe that just need to stop. Well, one, one phrase that we'll often use is the phrase, well, prayer works, prayer has power. Now that's true. I'm not saying that isn't true. I'm not necessarily saying the phrase itself is wrong, but what we sometimes believe about prayer may actually be wrong. Because for many, when we say prayer works, 
You just need to pray about it or I'll pray for you. I'll be in prayer for you. I'll go before the Lord on this behalf. These are good things if we believe the right things about it. But for many of us, it just means uh, prayer works because God did what I wanted him to do. In other words, prayer is equivalent to a button that I push to get what I want out of the godly vending machine. That's what prayer is. I said the right almost incantation. I, I quoted the right verses. I said the right facts. And so therefore, God has to respond affirmatively. Prayer works. It's important that we understand before we even get into this, prayer is not a button to push. It's a relationship to pursue. In other words, prayer is not a, a, a way to push the right buttons. It's the way to pursue the right heart. Prayer is not something we use to change God. Prayer is more often used to change us. James is going to really point that out, but let me give a few examples of, of ways in which prayer um, and the way we view prayer can be dangerous. First of all, prayer does work. There's no question. Prayer does have power. Prayer works, but it works differently than we sometimes would, would like. We would not choose uh, certain outcomes the way that they uh, may happen. Prayer is working even when we can't trace out any direct result from our prayer. Prayer is working even when the opposite of what we prayed for happens. In those moments when prayer, our prayers, uh, we may pray for a thing and it doesn't come back the way that we prayed and we don't get the outcomes that we had hoped for, those times we can really feel very distant from God. And that's understandable. And we need to be able to engage each other when we're feeling those things. There are times when we've been banging down the door of heaven for years and we are not sure anything is even going on up there at all. We need to be able to engage that with each other. We may feel, where, where is God? I've been praying this. I've been holding on to this. I've been believing this. I've been faithful. Where is God? Has my prayer been answered? Listen, there are people inside the church and outside the church with crushed spirits because they fervently prayed and they still didn't get the job. Their mom still died of cancer. Their child was born without a heartbeat. They ended up in a car crash that left them permanently disabled. Prayer doesn't work because I got what I wanted and they didn't. See, that's the danger. We think that prayer works because the right outcomes happened. Prayer is not defined by whether we get the outcomes that we want. Prayer is truly defined by what happens on a heart level and our response to the outcomes, be they good or bad. We've got to be careful how we use this phrase. Prayer should never be reduced to God doing what I asked him to do when I asked him to do it. God is not a puppy to be trained. He is not a chef to be ordered. He is sovereign. And so given that truth about God, now we enter into how should we pray? And more importantly, how does prayer work? This is where James ends his letter to the very first Christian church in Jerusalem. This is where James uh, lends uh, the greatest wisdom in prayer for us because he understands. Remember, he's talking to people that are dealing with all kinds of persecution and a lot of, at the time, unknown things coming their way. They're in fear. Folks are getting arrested. People are getting killed. They're wondering what can they do. He's given them lots of wisdom, lots of advice, and he ends with, Y'all need to make sure you pray, but make sure that your prayers are rooted in the proper place. Make sure your motivations are rooted in the proper place. Make sure you understand that you are not doing this on your own. There is a power outside of you upon which you must rely in order to uh, stand strong, to persevere, and to be fruitful. So with that, let's finish the book of James, uh, starting at verse chapter 5, verse 13. And let's really learn and hear from James on what prayer should be and what the power of prayer looks like. Is any among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church 
and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is such a, this can be a little bit difficult to understand because of how long these verses have been quoted and the ways in which they've been used and appropriated to teach some very dangerous doctrines about prayer, about healing, about faith, and what it means and what it doesn't mean. So we need to go back contextually and remember what's happening here, right? Remember, if you look at verse 13 again, remember James began this writing He started writing on the subject of suffering at the very beginning, right? He said, count it all joy when we fall in various trials, right? He opens up with suffering. He tells us that prayer is an answer for our suffering. And he doesn't say this in a way that's just the cliche way that we'll say. A lot of times we don't know what else to say, so just pray about it. And that's true. We need to pray about it. But he's not just giving this in a cliche way. There's something that needs to be occurring. And so James knows that in every situation, whether you're in trials, whether you're suffering, whether you're dealing with anything that is hard and difficult and that you need answers for, the answer is prayer. So what does he say? Is there anyone in the congregation, anyone of you who who is suffering? He says, let that person pray. The suffering that James is referring to is not merely, have you had a bad day at work? Did you just come out of a really, you know, annoying argument? Did you not get uh, the shift that you had hoped for? Did you happen to run out of gas and you had to stop and get uh, more gas on the way to work? That's not what he's talking about. That's not the kind of suffering. And y'all, it's important to just point out that sadly, in our world, especially in our country, we have almost this martyrdom syndrome. We all are almost martyrs looking for a cause. This is not, this is real serious suffering that's being addressed here. So every single situation that's uncomfortable is not necessarily suffering. So make sure that we identify that first. But when you look back, I mean, you look back to James 10 and you see that this suffering is a reference to the suffering that the prophets endured for the Lord. These disciples that suffered, the earlier prophets that suffered, suffered for their stand in righteousness, suffered for them holding to God's truth. They were suffering because they were speaking the messages of God. They suffered uh, for engaging a world that did not want to hear that message. And then remember, after James pointed out the suffering of the prophets, he turned his attention to the audience. And what does he tell us? He told them and he told us that uh, when we suffer for what is right, we need to start praying. When there's a suffering that's occurring and we're suffering because of something that's actually true and right, that's when we need to pray. Remember when the apostles suffered at the hands of the Sanhedrin, remember what they did. First thing the apostles and the first thing that the Christians in Jerusalem did was they prayed for boldness. One thing you'll notice when you look at the believers in the New Testament and even the early Christian church from the the annals of history, one of the things you'll notice is when people are really suffering, Curiously, their first prayers are not relief. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for relief because we, I think we should, but what you notice is that in a lot of ways, they kind of knew we're likely not going to get out of here. And so they prayed for boldness and they prayed for perseverance. It's the first thing you see the disciples praying. In Acts, you notice in Acts 4, 29 through 31, they're praying for boldness. So when we're not suffering for righteousness and we're not suffering, That means that the only thing that we can do is give praise and thanksgiving to God. When there's suffering, suffering in any real meaningful way, if we're suffering, that's one thing. When we're not suffering, we should have a heart of praise and thanksgiving. A lot of times God only hears from us when things are bad, when things are wrong. 
And really, we should be speaking out and being and having nothing but praise and thanksgiving for the things that, that go well. And not as if we did something to earn them and not as if we did, said the right things to get them. But just, Lord, I'm so thankful that this is working well here. And so that's what James starts with, is that if you're cheerful, sing praises. If you're suffering, pray. If you're sick, then we get to this part, right? So verses 14 and 15, this is when it gets a little complicated for us. Because not only has he started talking about prayer and suffering, but there's a power of prayer even in physical sickness. Now, I say physical sickness because some people have gone back and forth on whether or not this is just talking about spiritual sickness versus physical. And I do believe that James is talking about physical sickness. And there's a lot of reasons why. I really don't have time to go through all of them. But one would be that the word translated into sick here is this word astheneo. And that word always refers to physical illnesses throughout the Gospels. Furthermore, Paul uses the same word, right, to speak of even a spiritual sickness. But whenever he does, he gives a qualifier. If you remember in Romans 14, he talked about being weak in faith. So that word weak is that same word, astheneo, sick, but sick in faith. There's always a qualifier. He uses it again in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says weak in conscience. Again, that sickness, but sick in conscience. So anytime you want to look for a time when sp sickness is being referred to spiritually, there always is a qualifier. Uh, there's more reasons. Don't have time to get into them. But if we all agree that here, James is talking about physical sickness, then we can look at the actual power of prayer in physical sickness. What does he say? If anybody here, if anybody in the congregation is sick, if anybody is affirmed, let that person call for the elders of the church. Now, let me point out something. I think we should really see this as really serious illness. Doesn't mean we can't pray for any illness, be, that, be it serious or not. But this is a very serious illness. What, how can we see that in the text? Well, first, calling for the elders implies that this person is physically unable to go to the elders or to go to worship. They've got to be called for and brought to them. The elders are called to this one who is severely sick. Second, James says that the elders will, quote unquote, pray over the sick one. Now, today we use this phrase very, very generically. Anytime you pray for anyone, it's praying over. There's this heightened spiritual uh, authority we, we tend to have when we use this kind of phrase. But ultimately, this was, this was literally talking about the position of the elders over a severely ill person. It's actually the only place in scripture where you ever see the phrase pray over anywhere because it was really talking. Sometimes we over-spiritualize stuff because we want to feel more spiritually powerful. We don't need to do that. This is legitimately just a case where someone is so severely ill that the elders are called to their bedside and they are literally standing over them as they pray for them. That's it. And it's not a small thing, but he's just describing the posture so the person's so physically sick, they're laying on their mat or on the, on the floor, unable to get up. And the elders are praying over them in that posture because the sick person is on the floor. It would be similar to the posture in the hospital where a person is sick, laying in the bed and they can't get up or they can't uh, go anywhere. And somebody's standing over them to care for them. They're praying over them in a, in a posture like as if they were standing or maybe sitting over them or kneeling over them while the sick person is laying down. Here's the thing we have to understand and be very careful. We're not saying that elders or believers have special powers of healing. Now, there are people we see in the scripture, there are spiritual gifts of healing. And there's no question there are people who have spiritual gifts of healing. What that looks like, there's some good questions to be answered there. And we are going to go through a series at one point where we talk about that. But, but this isn't to say that the, like these elders have some special power of healing. James is recognizing that the elders are representative of the congregation, representing the church as a whole. And they are coming, representing the people who have genuine faith in God, that God is indeed a healer and that God does and can bring physical healing. But James does not give this absolute promise for certain healing all the time. Remember, he, he does say, call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. 
This isn't necessarily this absolute promise that every person who is prayed for will automatically be healed. We know that because there's several cases where that didn't happen. As a matter of fact, uh, it's not a promise that we won't die. It's not a promise that we won't suffer other ways because uh, the early church apostles, almost all of them, died very horribly, had really horrible outcomes as well. People still get sick. People still die. That isn't even the point. Remember, James is really, the point here is not necessarily how to find healing, but how our prayer should work when we need physical healing, where our heart posture should be when we acknowledge our need for physical healing. It's important to remember that there are times in scripture where there are principles that are very true, but they aren't necessarily promises every time. It's a principle in general. Yes, There are times where God absolutely heals. I've had it. I've seen it in my own life and the family. There's no question about that. But more more than that, whether the healing happens, the question is, what is the posture of our heart? And that's where prayer should be active, right? Again, prayer is not necessarily to change God. Prayer changes things. And we are things. We are one of those things. Our hearts need to be changed even when we are in desperate need of physical healing. So when, when he gets to this spot, this is such an important thing because not only does he say to go and ask for the elders to pray, remember the point, it's not, the point isn't just for healing, it's a, what's happening on a heart level too, but we can go to God when we need physical healing. And how do we know that the physical piece is still important? Because he says, call the elders of the church, they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, Some of your church backgrounds may not have any context for understanding what this might even mean for others. My church background, we used anointing oil for a lot of things. And there would be times when we would stop and we would pray and we would use anointing oil and we would lay hands and we would pray and praise God. There would be powerful prayers and we would have uh, incredible hopes and, and, and expectations of what we wanted to see God do. All that's fine. But we need to understand really what's happening here. Because there's a lot of things we do traditionally, and they're not necessarily bad. They may not necessarily be reflective of what was really happening in the New Testament, but they're nonetheless still helpful things, and we use those things, and there's nothing wrong with them. But what's happening here is a little bit different. You see, the first thing we have to understand is this call to anoint with oil, that would not have been foreign back then. Because it was something that was commonly used during that time in ancient Middle Eastern communities. The most common oil that people would use is olive oil. And olive oil was used for a little bit of everything. Practically, it would be used for food. It would be used for lamps, uh, lamp fuel. And it also was used for medicinal ointment purposes. It was one of the prime. Back then, the, 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 the ways that people understood medicine That was one of the best they could see the medicinal properties of olive oil. And so when you were sick or you had certain cuts and abrasions or whatever they they, would, whatever it would be, the go-to oftentimes would be grab the oil, grab the olive oil. When I was in the military, the running joke was anytime you felt sick, uh, they would always give you what we called vitamin M, Motrin. It was just Motrin for everything. Didn't matter what it was, Motrin. If you ever heard a certain comedian talk about growing up poor, Robitussin was the thing you used for everything. You have any kind of problem, rub some Tussin on it. This was a Tussin back then. Okay, this is what they used. They used this because this was a, 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 a coverall for any type of problem or ailment you may have. Did it always work? No. But in general, that was the best they had. And so when he says to pray and anoint with oil, it was used, right, for these very uh, practical reasons. And they also were used for very religious reasons to anoint kings, priests, prophets, tabernacles, temple uses, purification rituals, offerings, sacrifices. So oil was used for a little bit of everything. It's also interesting that this is the only place in scripture where believers were specifically and expressly told to use the oil in this way. They hadn't before, and they at least had not been told or commanded or mandated to do so. This is the first and only time where it happens. But I think it's important, and it's so important that we remember why, right? Sometimes we look at the what, and we disconnect it from the why, and then it becomes religious, almost meaningless practice. And we want to make sure that if we practice that, we understand what it's supposed to be signifying, what it should be conveying. Here's what it conveys. This verse is telling us, that when we're praying, we need to come armed with spiritual and natural resources for healing. 
whatever these there's a, he's already addressed the spiritual thing and he's going to go in again but there are natural resources as well and we shouldn't not neglect one for the other so spiritually you don't ever neglect god when you're ill reach out for prayer for folks to to come over because there is still something happening god is still moving working he has created our bodies he knows the inner workings of our bodies he holds our bodies together and he can heal them if he so chooses and so we definitely lean on god we also lean on god to ensure that our hearts are in the proper place when we're in need regardless of what the answer is but then there's also, uh, so, so there's power in prayer, there's spiritual power in prayer. However, we do not neglect natural resources for healing. That anointing with oil thing, that was not just this, this uh, almost kind of spiritual talisman, borderline voodoo call. That's not what this was. It was a very logical call. It was a very, it was basically saying the resources that you have for actual healing, the resources that you have to help folks medicinally, bring those in as you pray. That's important. Because I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in church co context in which people would see something like this, misunderstand scripture, misappropriate, misuse and abuse. And then folks start to believe as long as I have faith in God and I got people praying for me, I don't need medicine. I don't need to 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 uh, use certain uh, medicines and certain things that can help uh, avoid certain sicknesses or can help treat certain sicknesses. Why? Because I was just told all I need is some anointing oil and somebody praying for me. You see, we've we've misunderstood the context and what we've said before, bad context will lead to bad theology, which will lead to bad practice, which leads to harm, hurt, damage. So we've got some work to do to fix some of this. And this is why James, uh, his word is just as relevant for us today as it was back 2000 years ago. There's such a mistake today made by those in the religious community where people believe God must heal outside of any medical intervention. People won't take medicine or won't have surgeries because they believe that God is just going to heal them miraculously. The reason why James says make sure that you pray and have your spiritual stuff right, as well as that you have whatever medicinal aids are, are there, is because we should never be in the business of tempting God into having to do a miracle. It's completely foolish. So yes, we're going to go into something that we're dealing with right now. Everybody's got their reasons for whether or not to be vaccinated or not. We're not even going to talk about whether you should, whether you don't. I think there's good wisdom in that. That's me. But here's the thing. If our reasons for not taking any type of uh, where the medical community is very, uh, for the most part, on the same page and agreed on the benefits of a thing. If our reasons for not doing it are rooted in, I just believe God, I don't need that. That's foolish. I'm telling you now, that's foolish. That is not even the biblical prescription that's given here in James. You pray and you use whatever the medical benefits that we have that we know in wisdom, you bring them together. That's how you faithfully pray. That's how your faith should work. We don't disagree, we don't overlook medicine. We don't overlook the scientific community. God has given us science and medicine to explore his creation. So you cannot say you love God and you love his creation and then hate the very science he revealed to us in order to preserve and to protect creation, including our bodies. So we pray and we use wisdom and we use the things that have been revealed to us. Now, that doesn't mean that we put all of our trust in the treatments, but what we have treatments today for are, are as a very huge part of the ways in which God answers prayer. So we pray to God for grace, and that doesn't mean that we neglect the treatments that might be available for grace. She may need something, we pray for her, and we make sure that the treatments are there for her. But it also means that we don't put all of our trust in the treatments, forgetting that there's power in prayer for healing. So we come armed for healing through spiritual and natural means. That's it. That's how we deal with physical sickness. That's how we engage on a heart level. We pray, Lord, give me the right heart posture to make sure, to ensure that uh, I'm leaning on you, depending on you, realizing healing does not happen outside of you, and also have a heart that is prepared to deal and give and, and engage properly and faithfully with whatever this answer will be. And then we bring all of the scientific and medical wisdom that we have at the same time.
Then James goes further as he goes into uh, verses 15 and 16, and he talks about the prayer of faith. will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is, the, is very powerful in its effect. If you grew up like I did in the King James, we, we memorized this, right? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is uh, true, but we got to understand what it means, right? Because what it shows here is not only does prayer have power over our physical sicknesses, but it also has prayer over our spiritual sicknesses, our sin. And our sins can be forgiven through prayer. We see that clearly. If you look at John's first letter, in 1 John, he writes to the Christians and he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And not only do we confess, and really confessing to God is a form of prayer, but not only is confessing out loud and professing to God our sin nature and asking for forgiveness and, and practicing repentance, but if we confess our sins to one another, we then can pray for each other. So when we're struggling with weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, temptations, and sin, we can ask for the prayer of another. Notice that James doesn't only say confess your sins to the elders or confess your sins to a particular group of people within the church. Why? Because we are all on equal footing when it comes to sin. And all of us need the prayers of one another in our fight against sin. That's why James can make such a huge, sweeping, powerful, dynamic statement at the very end here, verse 16. That's why he can say, uh, when, when, he, when he walks in and says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful, and of, and of great effect. How, how, can he, how can he say that? Because we need to be exercising prayer because it's a powerful tool that works in a variety of circumstances. Prayer works when we're suffering for righteousness. Prayer works when we are severely ill. Prayer works when we confess our sins to God and, and it brings forgiveness from God. Look at what can be done when prayer is exercised. Prayer causes things to happen. Prayer changes things. Why? Because prayer changes people. There's something even about confessing sin to one another where you hear yourself confessing. There's a humility that it takes in order to get to a place where you can confess real sin. That is an area that I'm sure we all struggle because your perception of yourself is rarely in the same circle of where all the truth is. You realize that, right? We all are in a place where we, we are hoping to live in an area that I would call, if I could draw this out, three concentric circles. You've got the big circle, that's the truth. And then you've got your perception of yourself, that's this circle here. And you have others' uh, perception of you over here. Now, sometimes your perception of yourself fits well. It's, it may not have all the truth, but it's a good amount of it is covered in the truth circle. And other people's perception of you may also be in a good area of the truth. When that happens, that's where the best intimacy is. That's where the best relationship is. That's where the safety is. That's where humility is. But more often than not, our perception of ourself is outside of that bigger circle of truth. So we've got a little circle of how we see ourselves, And we've got a larger portion of the circle, this big truth circle that little, we have very little that's overlapping there. And then other people might end up seeing the truth for what it is. They actually, their perception of us might have more of the big, big circle of truth going. And so we may not want to hear it. Our job is to get as close to the truth as possible. Our perception of ourselves needs to be in the greater circle of truth first. And then we go and bring our sin to our brother or our sister. That takes humility. The greatest change happens when we humbly look at ourselves truthfully get outside of our perception of ourselves and measure our perception of ourselves by the truth. And sometimes that happens when you're in community where you're hearing other people's perceptions to see how much of that fits in the truth. That is, this is a huge part of how our prayer lives actually grow. Because when I know what's true about me, then I start to, to declare those things that are true or not true to God, asking for help in making real change or praising God for areas where there's been real growth. So you see, you can't truly have a powerful prayer life if you don't have true self-awareness. If you aren't aware of where your real brokenness still is, you will always think other people are far more broken than you. 
you will always think that everyone else has way further to go than you do, which means your prayers for them won't be rooted in any real humility, and your prayer for yourself likely won't be rooted in any real humility. Everything bad happens to you, everything bad happens at the hands of everyone else, and you never, ever grow. You won't grow in relationships, and you won't grow in your relationship with God. That's how powerful prayer should be. And then he gives us an example. James gives us this example of prayer. He's laid out the case and now he's like, hey, here's a great example. Let's look at Elijah. Elijah was a human being just like we are. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the land. Then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. James bolsters his point by turning to this example of Elijah. And even before he gives us the illustration, James is wanting to remind us that Elijah was a person just like you, just like me. His nature was the same as yours and mine. Yes, Elijah was a prophet, true. But regarding this power of prayer, the fact that Elijah was a prophet is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The fact that I'm a pastor is, is irrelevant. We are on the same journey. We are in the same place. We are desperately in need of powerful prayer lives because of what it does to change and shape and remake us to be able to trust God more fully, to lean on him more heavily, to mourn together more authentically, and to love each other well. Elijah accomplished great things through prayer. Elijah wasn't, uh, if, you, if you remember, he, he wasn't superhuman. He, 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 he prayed to the supernatural almighty God. We can accomplish great things through prayer, but prayer is not for personal selfish gain. It's for God's kingdom. It's for God's glory. So Elijah prayed fervently. James points that out. Then he says, look at the outcome of his fervent prayer. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. James is begging us to pay close attention to why prayer is useful and why we must engage more frequently in prayer. Last thing James says here is prayer, uh, when we think about prayer, how prayer should be changing our heart and how it should be motivating our hearts, he shows that even the saving, the encouraging of souls who have struggled or wandered away for, for various reasons, those are also things that should be affecting us. Those are also things that should be moving us, right? We should be moving to be able to go and, and, and to pull back lovingly, to draw back lovingly those who may have uh, run away or turned away from the truth for any number of reasons. Sometimes we don't talk about this enough, but we also have to ask, does my prayer life, my relationship with God, this relationship that I'm pursuing, again, not button pushing, but heart pursuing, if I'm really pursuing the heart of God and hoping to make that true in my own life, do I care enough about other people? Do I care enough about other souls, other people's spiritual uh, issues? Do I care enough about, or am I so absorbed with my stuff that I cannot care about others? James concludes this letter with this call to action. Don't ignore the folks who have drifted or wandered away. We have a responsibility to bring back someone who has struggled, wandered, kind of meandered away for any number of reasons. Notice he doesn't give this instruction exclusively to the shepherds. He doesn't give this uh, instruction exclusively to the pastor. It's important that we remember this because more often than not, if an issue is happening, what do people want to do? Pastor, you need to handle that because I heard X, Y, and Z, or I saw X, Y, and Z, and they need somebody to go reach out to them. Well, if we're growing the way we should and we're maturing the way we should, you should be able to reach out. You should be able to have, if you have the humble type of relationship with God and with others that you should have, then you should be empowered. If your prayers have been less self-focused and more focused on your heart being changed and being remade, then you should be able to engage the heart of someone who is struggling, running away. So James gives that call to all of us. We're all called to join in that effort. So that means we have to have our eyes open. We've got to be aware of, of how people's lives are going, not in a judgmental way or in a nosy way, but in a genuine, caring, and concerned way. All of us have to see this as a vitally important responsibility given to every single believer. The motivation is even similar 
uh, to God's commission that he gave to Ezekiel. If you remember in Ezekiel 3, God told Ezekiel that if he preached and warned the people and they didn't turn back, the guilt of their sins would be on their own heads. And, and instead, though, if Ezekiel chose not to preach or warn the people, then the guilt of their sins would not only be on their own heads, but on Ezekiel's head. God made it clear if those folks keep sitting and they don't get warning or, or they don't or, or they don't turn from their own deeds, they're going to have to deal with this on their own. But he told Ezekiel, you choose not to go warn them. You choose not to go care for them, love them enough to warn them and say that danger that you're the thing that you're a part of is going to bring real danger your way. You don't do that. Their sin will be on your head as well. James 5, 20 here, he makes the same implication. We must work to help love those who have struggled or are dealing with really hard things or maybe even running away for any number of things. Maybe it's sinful actions on their part. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe it's pain. Maybe it's church hurt. Whatever that is, we cannot ignore. We can't ignore the bleeding and the hurting of those that are in the flock. And look, let me just say this in closing. We don't get this right. We, we, we don't get this right. It's a struggle. It's an ongoing struggle. How do we pray? What should we say? Where should our heart be? We don't always do this right. I certainly don't do this right. I'm fairly certain you don't do this right all the time. We struggle. The scripture reminds us in Romans 8, we don't even know how to pray as we ought to. Consider that. Some of you have some of the most incredible education that is offered in this country. And some of us don't have any of the education at all, but you know what uh, unites us all? No matter how smart we are, no matter how much education we have, no matter how, um, no matter how much mastery we have of the English language, you and I both fail in knowing how we ought to really be praying. We, got some, we have some templates and we have some hope that we can try our best and God honors that and God wants that, but he keeps us in a place of humility and says, even in the midst of everything that you're doing and everything you're trusting in and everything that you know, you still don't truly know how to pray as you ought to. But what does Romans tell us? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Why do we not always know how to pray? Because we do not know what God's will is in all these different situations. We know what our will is. And so we pray that and we hope that in some way, or maybe in the most perfect ways, that God's will corresponds positively with what our will is. But we don't know how to pray that. There's something that we want to see happen, but we don't know what God's will is. And so God actually comes and says, I'm interceding on your behalf because with your prayers, I know what your heart is, but I also know what my will is. And my spirit intercedes on your behalf so that the right things get prayed every time. So we don't have to worry about, I think a lot of times people have taken that passage to mean, and so now I have to have some kind of special way to pray so that my prayers would be more powerful. No, no, no. Keep in mind, these prayers that can't be, there's a reason why he said that the Spirit prays for us in words that can't be uttered. So don't even, don't stress your pretty little mind on how to figure out how to utter those words. That's not your place. That's the Spirit's place. We pray and we use our minds and we think about what things we hope are true and that we think are true. And then the spirit perfects that. The spirit knows things we can't possibly. The spirit knows that are things that are coming an hour from now that we don't. And the spirit is able to utter and to step in on our behalf and to come in and to intercede on our behalf. He doesn't do it through us. He does it for us on our behalf. So the beautiful thing is that even in the midst of us not having it all perfect, we trust that we have to lean and rely on God in prayer. We trust that prayer is not something we use to move God and pull his strings. We trust that prayer is something that God uses to move us, to remind us of who he is, to remind us of our own brokenness at times, to remind us of our reliance on him, to remind us of our need to constantly be changed and sanctified, to look more like God, to love more like Jesus. James ignites us with these two important calls. Pray in every situation. Pray always for all things. Prayer is powerful. Don't ignore prayer. Don't neglect prayer. And when you pray, go and do the work of the Lord. Go and care about those who are in need. Go and care about those who are struggling. Go and, and, and care for people who have been hurting. 
go and genuinely be concerned and say, I just want to make sure that even in all of the things that you're going through, that your trust in God is still there. How can I lovingly engage? And maybe even it just means I don't even know. I don't have answers for why God did a thing. I need to be able to sit. You need to be able to sit with me when I have things that's happened in my life for which there are no real answers and not give padded cliches and not give just the same answers that we're used to hearing. Just sit with someone, cry with someone and say, I don't know why this is happening. I'm praying that God will continue to give us a genuine hope and to convince our hearts that he still loves that he is still there, that he still wants us, that he still cares for us, because he says he does. And so we need to be reminded of that regularly. I need to be reminded that he says he's faithful and just and that he will never leave and forsake us. But what do I do when I'm feeling forsaken right now? Things that I've prayed for that I think should happen in my own mind. uh, Love should look like this, and yet it's not. I need folks to stand by me and say, you know what? I get that. That's really painful. I'm just going to sit in your pain with you. I'm not going to give you quick answers. I'm not going to give you quick, a bunch of scriptures. I just want to sit with you so that you know, because sometimes just the very presence of God's people is a reminder that God is still near. We have to be careful not to push people away because that will just further get them to a place where they're like, well, God must not really be here for me. And they start to run. So we pray in all things and we pursue those that, uh, that we love, those that we care for, those that God care for. And many times that in and of itself, that love, that concern, that humility is something that, as some scriptures put, is almost snatching people's very souls from the fire. So I ask you, how powerful is your prayer life today? And I do not mean how effective in outcomes have your prayers been? I'm not talking about external outcomes. How much of your heart is rooted in God's heart as a result of the way you pray? How how many of your relationships have been enriched because of the ways that you humbly pray for your brother or for your sister? How have your relationships been enriched by the way your brother and your sister humbly prays for you? Do you have relationships wherein you can truly share authentically where real sinful sickness occurs, where real struggles occur. You see, James makes it clear and God makes it clear that if you don't have the right types of relationships with others, you can't possibly have a good prayer life. You can't possibly have a very powerful prayer life because we actually not just need God, we need each other because that's how we work out the very things of God. That's how we work out the very heart of God. It's not a solo act. We've said it over and over again. Your faith is personal, but it's never private. Your prayers are personal, but they're also never exclusively private. So may we be a people that prays God, prays to God and, and, and asks God to show us what needs to be true in our own hearts, what needs to be true in our souls, and what needs to be true in our relationships with one another. Because ultimately, as we close the end of this entire book and we close out this series, our faith should work a certain way. When our faith works properly, then our relationship with God is full and our relationships with each other are full. If you only have one and not the other, the faith's not working right. If our prayers aren't functionally working the way that James lays out, something's wrong with our faith. May we be a people that are known, not just by the outcomes of our prayers and what we say is the outcome of our faith, but may people be known by the ways in which we truly practice love for one another. What it means to engage genuine authenticity, what it means to engage in being honest, being loving, being caring, and ultimately being remade to look like the way that we should on the other end of that assembly line. That's what Jesus came to do. We say it over and over again. He didn't just come to save you from something. He came to save you to something. And he remakes you in order for you to get there. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that you, you call us to something that is such a high calling. Engaging in faith with you is not something that is we should be taken lightly. It's not something that we should go into with a lack of sobriety and a lack of urgency. 
But you do call us to come in with humility and honesty and being aware of all the ways in which we fall short. God, I'm thankful that even as you call us into these things that are seemingly impossible on our own, you empower us to pray. You not only empower us to pray with the right truths about you, you give us your heart so that we can feel the right things about you. And then when those things fail, because we're not perfect, you then pray on our behalf. You pray for us. You pray in ways that are so uh, substantive that we can't even begin to try to utter them ourselves. And Father, we won't. We will trust you. We will lean on you to pray on our behalf. And God, in all of the things that you know in your perfect will and your perfect knowledge, Lord, continue to impart your heart to us. Give us a deep burning desire to not only love you well, but to love our neighbor well, to love our brother and our sister well. Lord, I pray that everything that we've seen in this series, what it means for us to ultimately decenter ourselves and make you the unavoidable issue in every aspect of our lives. Because Lord, you made our sin and our redemption the unavoidable issue. So we thank you. We love you. We pray for our prayer lives to be lit on fire for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's receive this final blessing, the benediction of God, the author and the finisher of our faith. Listen to the ways in which our God empowers our faith so that it works the way it was designed to work. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Father and our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. And may all God's people say, Amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.